good to be with you this morning as we start this new series, We Believe, and we're giving it the tagline, Foundations for a Resilient Faith. And so what we're going to do is look at the eight big things that Christians everywhere all agree on. And we've seen them sketched out in that video, God, Jesus, humanity, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the spirit, the church, and our hope. And we're going to follow that shape through the next eight weeks and look at what those things are. And we're going to do it rooted in the Nicene Creed, which is a 1,700-year-old document that all Christians everywhere, whether they've heard it or not, line up with in terms of our theology. Wherever in the world you come from, that's Orthodox Christianity and has been for 17 centuries, which is kind of cool. But it has a couple of, a couple of quirks to it using a very old text. Because one of the things that happens when you read really old documents is that they don't use words that you necessarily would have chosen, or they use words differently than you. So we read that, you hear that read out, and you think, begotten. It's not a word we often use. You don't see a pregnant woman on a bus and say, congratulations, you're begetting. It's just not the way that we talk. And so you have to think, okay, begotten, okay, generated life of the same nature as you. Or for instance, you might hear the word Catholic in that and think, Hmm, Catholic, that to me sounds like it means Roman Catholic, as in the Pope. But in fact, Catholic in those days, and for much of history, has meant universal. As Catholicos is the Greek word for the universal or the whole church. So there's a few things like that which we're going to have to work through as we go. But there's a load of positives to using a really old thing as well, which is that this is something that Christians everywhere believe in, and it gives us an idea of just how big the worldwide church is and how small we are, in a good way. So we go, Kings is a big church, but it's a tiny, tiny fragment of the global church of billions, many of whom have literally read out those words in their own languages already this morning as part of their worship. And so we stand with all of you and we all worship. We all love Jesus, even though, my goodness, we do church in very different ways to each other. So there's some really strong things about doing it, even if there's a couple of things we're going to have to explain as we go. And one of, the, one of the things we have to explain up front is this series, although we're going to use the creed each week, we're not going to preach from the creed each week, if you see what I mean. There's a difference. So we're going to use the creed to help us, guide us through biblical teaching, but we're not going to preach from the creed. We're going to preach from the Bible. But we think that the creed is actually a very good summary of what the Bible teaches, and the best analogy I know for that is that the creed is like the moon, and biblical revelation is like the sun. You can look at the moon and you say, it's shining. And you think, well, in some ways the moon doesn't shine at all. In fact, it doesn't. It just reflects light from something else. But in doing it, at nighttime, it can give us light even when we can't see the sun. And I think the creed is a helpful reflect. It doesn't have authority in itself, but it takes from the light from another source and then reflects it to us so we can go, that's a very helpful pulling together of biblical ideas. And that's why we want to use it in this series, and it will be agreed with and subscribed to by all Christians, Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, Nestorian, Coptic, you go Ethiopic, you go anywhere in the, in the world, and you'll find Christians who line up with the Nicene Creed, even if we disagree about loads of other stuff. So it's kind of a good place to start, but before we launch into it, I want us to read from Scripture, and we're going to go to Mark chapter 12, and you're going to hopefully do your best not to be weirded out by this 
piece of um, eye-shaped Jenga with the kind of spooky eyes and not distracted by the shoddy workmanship of one of the Allens who put it here. Um, We will come and rectify that later. Um, In fact, at at Lee, we had to do the entire thing with the eyes not facing out because our comms director, Brett Melville, is so scared of the eyes. So we had to kind of turn the whole thing on its side so you couldn't see them. It was quite special. Anyway, we're going to read from the Word of God for a minute in Mark 12, and then we're going to come back to this and see how the creed works and why it's possibly a good idea. Mark 12, and beginning at verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that Jesus had answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind, all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of God. I don't know how you feel about creeds. If your main experience of Christianity has been in churches like this, you might be a bit suspicious of them. You might think... Why are we doing this? We, no, we don't need anything. We just need the Bible. Some of you, I met somebody over at the, the Lee site who'd heard we were doing it, who immediately said, I can't believe we get to study the creed. I never thought we'd do that. You might have a very positive or actually quite a negative experience of this kind of thing. And so what I wanted to do for the first few minutes before launching into what the creed says, actually to explain why I think it's okay and actually can be helpful for us to use documents other than the Bible to summarize biblical teaching. And I wanted to make a couple of comments based on the text we've just read and Jesus' encounter with this scribe to help us with that. I made two comments in particular. And the first introductory comment, if you like, is that in this story, in Jesus' encounter with this scribe, we would, I think, be able to see that some, this might sound shocking, but I think it's true, that some teachings of Scripture are more important than others. <laughs> right? So some of us might think, that's very weird. You just implied that some parts of the Bible don't matter. But actually, I think Jesus' response to this man clearly shows that he thinks some parts of Scripture matter or are more important or are more central than others. doesn't mean that they're not all true. I think the whole Bible is true. It's equally inspired by God. But there are some parts of it that if you take them out, some teachings, if you take them out, you end up with nothing like Christianity. And other parts... The fact that there is one God matters a lot more than the fact that there were 51,417 men in the tribe of Judah at the time of a certain census. Right? They'd, one of them is just, doesn't mean that the other's not true, it just means that one of them is much more central to the, the whole of the biblical story than the other one. So the scribe comes up and says, Jesus, which is the most important commandment? And he doesn't say, oh, they're all equally important. Go away, you tyke, and stop asking stupid questions, which he could have. And what he actually says is, the most important is, hero Israel, the Lord is one, and you'll love him. And the second most important is, love your neighbor as yourself. He's deliberately taking 
a prioritization of biblical truth and saying, even in the law, some bits are more central than others. And if you ever played Jenga, I think Jenga is a fantastic game. Okay, so this is like a plastic version because um, it's the, the the one we, that we found at the early learning center. And there are some the concept of Jenga is that there are some pieces you can take out, and the entire structure doesn't fall down. So in fact, they're all all of the pieces of Jenga are equally sized, right, equally weighted, but some of them carry more weight than others in the structure. So you take that one out, doesn't matter, the structure stands. Take that one out, a little bit stickier, doesn't matter, the the, the thing stands. Take that one out. Oh, that's a, no, there we go. Very simple. Comes out. The whole structure remains. Oh, or does it? Yes, it does. Just. Okay? But there's loads of things like that where you go, we can take it out and the thing doesn't collapse. And there are some doctrines in Christianity that although they are just as sizable as others, if you take them out, it doesn't call for everything else to fall in on its head. But there are other doctrines that if you take them out, the entire structure of Christianity collapses in a heap. And some of you, if you play Jenga, you realize it gets dicey towards the end because you're trying to pull out the last one and win, and then eventually somebody pulls out one too many and the whole thing falls down. And there are some doctrines that are like so foundational that the structure can't survive without them. Christianity is like that. There are doctrines. There are essential truths, and I think the Nicene Creed is a great summary of eight of them, that if you take them out, you don't have Christianity anymore. A really helpful way, and probably my favorite way of describing this idea, and it's actually the basis of the artwork in the series, is that there are Christian doctrines that are written in pencil, in ink, and in blood. And so there are doctrines that I believe that are written in pencil, right? I have an opinion on them. There are things I think, I think this is true. And you might think something else is true, and that's fine. And I would write it down in pencil, but I'd be happy to go back and rub it out and admit I was wrong, and it wouldn't really change very much. And you might have changed your mind on it, and I might, and we might disagree now, or we might come to agree later, but it's in pencil. It's very low grade in its impact on everything else. I'm thinking of questions like, how old is the earth? Or should a Christian fight in a war? Or can children take communion? I'd say, I've got an opinion on those things, so have you. But the fact that our opinions might differ doesn't mean that we're not going to stand in the same church and worship in the same way. They're written in pencil. There are some Christian doctrines that are written in ink. And these are doctrines that if you change them, there is forever a kind of a mark on the page that you can see. I changed this, and it was costly. It actually mattered. And ink doctrines are the kinds of doctrines that you probably want to make sure you agree with your church on. So if you're going to worship in a church, you probably want to know that the ink things, which I'm actually quite strongly committed to, even if I admit that people who are Christians disagree, I think this is true, and it actually really matters to me. So I give an example of, for instance, in this church, where you believe that you baptize believers. Right? We don't baptize babies in this church. That doesn't mean we think people who do baptize babies aren't Christians. But it does mean that we don't believe that, and we don't do that. So, and that's the kind of thing you either do or you don't believe, and you can't really have a church that does both. So we'd say, well, we do take a view on that, and we think it's important. But that doesn't mean we're saying, you're not a believer. It just means we're saying, this is how we do it, and it's important to us. Another example might be, we believe that spiritual gifts are for today. We believe that the Holy Spirit, all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit are still available now. And again, I've got brothers and sisters, and so have you, who believe very strongly differently on that issue. And they're my family, but I strongly disagree on that issue. It's written in ink for me. It's an important belief. And I could be wrong. But for me to change it is actually very costly. And I want to be in a church where people agree. 
Some things are written in ink. And there are some things that are written in blood. There are some doctrines that are so central that I would die for them, literally. And many people have. There are things that if I was to take them away from Christianity, Christianity would not be Christianity. There are some doctrines, the oneness of God, you take out, you say, actually, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in one God, I believe in 11. You say, well, that's not Christianity, actually. That's, that's not even we can agree to disagree. That's like, that's not Christian. You say, I don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Jesus, I think Jesus is still dead, but I'm a Christian. Think, no, 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 that's not Christianity. That's a different kind of thing. That's not the same. There are doctrines that are so foundational that if you pull them out, the entire thing collapses and goes all over the floor, and what you have is no longer Christian. And the creed is a summary of those beliefs. It's the ones that are written in blood. It's the foundational ones that you can't remove without the whole thing falling down. And I think that's really the principle of prioritizing some things as more central than others is something we get straight from Jesus in this story. Another thing we get from Jesus in this story is that it's okay and might be helpful to form those summary statements of what you believe by drawing different passages of Scripture together. Right? So they say, what's the most important command? And he says, well, the most important one is, and he quotes Deuteronomy 6. And then he says the second most important one is, and he quotes Leviticus. In other words, he is drawing together, he is systematizing different parts of Scripture to form a statement. This is number one, this is number two, and if you want to fulfill the law, you live like this. And that's actually a a systematic exercise. That is, he's arranging material that didn't belong together in the Old Testament, but he's saying this is actually how you bring it together to make a summary statement of what's important. And again, I think to some degree we all do that, actually. We all know that there are certain ways of saying what we believe that we find helpful arrangements of biblical ideas. So if you are not a Christian here this morning... I'm hoping you'll find this series really helpful because it will focus just on the things that Christians all agree on and try and make them clear. Because often Christians disagree about loads of things. But for this series, we're going to be talking about the ones that we all agree on. And I think that's a very, very helpful thing to do. And just to finish this introductory bit on the creed as a whole, and then we'll go into what it says, I just want to tell you briefly the story of how we got from arranging material into a summary statement into this particular summary statement we've heard called the Nicene Creed. So here's a map, and this is... Oh, I love it when the timing works. Here's a map of um, the Mediterranean world, the Roman Empire, in the 4th century. Okay, So there'll be some of us, including me, who come from parts of the map, parts of the world that are not on the map. Um, but this is much of the Christian world or Christendom in the 4th century. And what's happened is the Roman Empire spreads through kind of Europe, Asia, and Africa. And the emperor, because Christianity spread and spread and spread, 120 people has now turned into millions of people. And eventually there's a tipping point where the empire becomes so full of Christians that it starts to affect people in power. And in 312 AD, the emperor himself converts to Christianity. His name is Constantine, or Constantine, and he becomes a believer. And then 12 years after that, he becomes the sole emperor. So the purple bit is the Eastern Empire, and the, I don't know what to call it, the Angel Delight Colored uh, Western Empire is it's just a separate thing. But the emperor, Constantine, having become a believer, then ends up winning a battle that integrates the whole empire under his leadership in 324 A.D. And in 325, one year later, he says, 
We need to identify what Christians actually believe about the person of Jesus Christ. Because this is causing a problem. I'm the emperor of the whole thing. I'm a Christian. I don't know what Christians should believe. And the reason he does that is because down here in Alexandria, in North Africa, there are two African bishops, or one African bishop and one African deacon at this point, who are in disagreement about whether Jesus is fully divine and whether he is eternal or whether he is created and came to exist. And there is a debate between Bishop Arius and a deacon called Athanasius. They are debating, and it it's represents a much bigger debate in the empire. And the emperor says, we've got to sort this out. So he holds a council at Nicaea, which is near Constantinople. And he says, I want bishops from all over to come, and we're going to discuss this. We're going to figure it out, and then we're going to write it down. And the document that they wrote in the Council of Nicaea is called the Nicene Creed. They wrote it in 325 and then they edited it, and it was also used in th- revised in 381, and that's the document we've just heard read on the video. And ever since then, Christians of all stripes and denominations have used it as a way of saying, this is what we believe. These are the foundations we have for a resilient faith. And the Nicene Creed begins exactly like Jesus begins in Mark chapter 12. What's the most important thing? They say to Jesus, and he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Nicene Creed begins, we believe in one God. That's where we start. That's the, if you say, what is the most important? What is the most foundational thing in Christianity? The belief in one God. And that's what Jesus says, and that's what the Nicene Creed says too. And in the context of our world today, that doesn't sound very weird, probably. Most of us have come from cultures where belief in one God is very common, and it might even be the norm for many of us. Right? So if there are 7 billion people in the world today, 4 billion of whom-ish believe in one God. Right? Christians, Muslims, and Jews believe in one God. That's about 4 billion people. Of the remaining 3 billion, about half of them believe in many gods, and half of them believe in no gods. But here's an interesting thing about the people who believe in no gods. And you might be one today. You might be an atheist. You're here today. You're just looking in and checking it out. Great to have you with us. My guess is if somebody said to me, what do you believe about spiritual things? You might say, I don't believe in God. And even in that statement, you would be assuming that if there was to be a God, there would only be one. I don't believe in God. I'm not saying you should therefore believe it. I'm just saying our society is so shaped by the belief in one God because of Israel that when you frame that sentence, even if you don't believe in him, you would still say, I don't believe in God, but if I did, I'd believe in one. That is because our society has been shaped by monotheism, the belief in one God. In our world, that's normal. That's mainstream. In fact, if your neighbor said, actually, I believe in sort of 17 gods, you would probably think, well, that's quite unusual. Whereas if they said, I believe in God, you'd think that's quite normal. But when Moses first said the words that Jesus is quoting, this sounded completely absurd. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, would have sounded even more weird in the ancient world than saying, I believe in 17 and a half does now. It's such a radical, it's such an odd statement that no one thought like that in the ancient world. In the ancient world, all the nations believed there were many gods, apart from Israel. And what they did was, they said, well, our gods are this one, this one, and this one. Here's our sun god, our crops god. Here's a phallic symbol we worship so that our cows have birth, give birth properly. All that. Here's our gods. Oh, and those are your gods. Oh, okay, well, you get on with that. We'll get on with this. And if we ever fight a war, then when you lose, that proves that our god is bigger than your god, and you need to come and worship our god. You read the Old Testament, that happens all the time. It, 
Imagine, and I can say it because there's some tidbits in the room, um, imagine that you do that with Crystal Palace and Manchester City from yesterday, okay? So Manchester City, five, Crystal Palace, nil. In the ancient world, that would mean that all fans of Crystal Palace now need to become fans of Manchester City because Manchester City have proved their superiority over Crystal Palace. This is going down like a lead balloon in southeast London, isn't it? Right? Now, in the ancient world, that would be normal. In the ancient world, what would happen is the palace fans would go, oh, okay, your God is stronger and we're a bit annoyed about it, but we will come and worship yours. But what Israel did was they did the equivalent of Crystal Palace losing 5-0 and then saying, not only are we not going to bow down to your club, we don't even acknowledge that you are a club. We say there is only one football club in the entire world and it is Crystal Palace. And you guys are not clubs at all. You're parodies of ours. Which is pretty much what Steve does. (laughs) And that might give you a just... If somebody said, I actually only believe in one football club, you and I would go, that's... I don't know, that's just an eccentric, weird belief. That's not real. But in Israel's world, that was what it sounded like to say, I only believe in one God. And they did it all the time. First commandment, you shall have no other gods but me. And Israel's, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Who is like you among the gods? You alone are God. That's what they did all the time. And the pagan nations couldn't get their heads around it. So King Ahab is uh, wanting to worship the Lord and Baal. And Asherah are the other gods of the Near East. And so he's saying, it's fine, I worship the Lord a bit, and I worship these gods as well. And Elijah, in the original Hebrew, said, Ah! And then you have Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar conquers Judah, takes them into exile. We've beaten you. Now here's a big gold statue of me. Bow down to it. That's what we do. And the three friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, went in the original Hebrew, Ah! We will not do that. We will burn alive rather than doing that. There is one God and one God alone, and he is the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah. That's the only God. The others are not real. So Jesus is saying, and actually the first line of the Nicene Creed is saying, that at the absolute foundation of Christianity is the belief that there is one God. That is a belief you cannot take out without changing Christianity into something else. As we'll see in the next few weeks, Christians also believe that that one God is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that is a confusing belief to hold alongside it, and we will talk more about that next week and beyond. But that must never, ever make us believe or trick us into thinking that there are three gods, or more than that. There is one God. And you shall love him, Jesus says, with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. Having said that, it doesn't really do you much good to believe in one God unless it's the real one. So our local member of parliament where I, in the town, my hometown of Eastbourne, has this phrase he often says, particularly when talking to people of faith. He says, you know, I I believe in the God of my understanding. It's like, who's that now? The the God of your understanding? That doesn't help you. To believe in a God that you have in your own head doesn't really get you anywhere. right? I could say, I believe in one God. Who's the God? Oh, it's the Son. I worship the Son. And it's no good at that point saying, but I only worship the Son. That's my only God. It's not enough just to believe in one God or I believe in one God. It's this statue. That doesn't on its own get you anywhere. It's not just a question of believing in one God, whoever he, she, or it is. It's a question of believing in one God, the Father Almighty and creator of the heavens and the earth and all things seen and unseen. That's, how you, that's what it means to worship the real God. You've got to worship the real one, 
not a fake one that you made up. And the God that we believe in and worship and love with our heart, mind, soul, and strength is not just the one God, but the Father Almighty and the maker of heaven and earth. He's the Almighty Father. That's who we worship. That's who God is. A few weeks ago, as we began our Lord's Prayer series, Phil was making the point that when we come to God in prayer, we must come to him as Father, as our Father. But interestingly, the creed actually goes a bit further than that. It says it's not even just that you come to him as our Father, it's that you come to him as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in one God, the Father, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son. And the reason I think that's important is because it's not just that you, that God is a father because he's a father to you and therefore somehow became a dad the first time a Christian came to follow him. Actually, the creed is saying he is the father of Jesus and he's a father in and of himself since before there was a world. He has been a life-giving, other-centered, life-generating God before there was a creation. He is the father of Jesus millions and billions of years before he was the father of you or me or anyone. That's immensely powerful. That's why the apostles so often say, praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. They start there because they recognize that in God's being is his fatherhood of Jesus. And then that what happens when you and I are adopted into his family is we participate in a father-son relationship that has existed since before the world began. That's a beautiful thing to step into. God is not learning how to be a dad like I had to learn how to be a dad. God has always been father in and of himself. It's an aspect of his nature. It's not just something he does. It's something he is. I am not a father by nature. I have become a father. God has always been. And that's one of the things I find beautiful about the baptism of Jesus. I think it's a wonderful story. If you know it, Jesus goes down into the water. He's baptized. He comes out. The Spirit descends as a dove, and the Father says from heaven, This is my beloved Son, and with him I am very pleased. The Father loves Jesus so much that when you and I are brought into Jesus, all of that overwhelming love the Father has for the Son gets shared with us. We are adopted as his younger brothers and sisters, if you like, and some of us need to hear that today because we struggle to believe God would love us because we are a mess, and we don't feel lovable. But your, God's love for you is not based on how lovable you are. It's based on how lovable Jesus is. Because as you are brought into Christ and God loves Christ, he loves you as well. And you're incorporated in. So you say, is God going to stop loving me? Is like asking, is God ever going to stop loving Jesus? It's unthinkable. Because he is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are brought into that relationship through faith. So your security is not based on how lovable you are, but based on how lovable Jesus is. He is the Father. And he is the Father Almighty. He is the creator of heaven and earth and all things seen and unseen. Everything that has ever come into existence came into existence through him. Every single thing, visible or invisible. His strength is endless. His power is matchless. His sovereignty is boundless. His love is limitless. And everything that ever came to be, came into be because of him. All things visible. Stars, rocks, trees, bananas, puffins. All came into being because of the Father. All things invisible. There are billions of atoms and electrons and quarks in this room that we can't see. They're all here and sustained by the power of the Father. 
All of them, every last one of them. Every electromagnetic wave, every mobile phone signal that you can't see in this room. Every angel in this room. Every human soul, invisible though it is, in this room is created by the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible. And yet he remains our Father. He remains the all-powerful Papa, the infinite Abba, the Dad without limits, the Father Almighty. And the coming together of those two truths, that God is the Father and that he is the almighty creator of all things, is just glorious. And my favorite statement of it, in fact, my favorite comment on this line of the creed that I've ever read, comes from a a German question and answer document that was written in the 16th century. I know that sounds really weird and stuffy, but you'll see it's fantastic. Because we're going to read it in a second. But it's just a, what they used to do in the church is they used to take hold of these, the creed and they'd say, now let's explain what the creed means. Let's unpack it. Let's teach people who can't read what they should believe by doing questions and answers. And this is what they said about that line in the creed we've just read. The question was, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. What's that mean? Answer, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence, is my God and Father because of Christ the Son. I trust God so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul and will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends upon me in this sad world. God is able to do this because he is almighty God, and he desires to do it because he is a faithful father. And when I first read that, my mind was blown because I realized if God was almighty and he wasn't father, he would be able to save me and he might not want to. And if he was father but he wasn't almighty, he might want to save me and might not be able to. But because he is Father Almighty, he can save me and he will. And he can provide for me and he will. And he can sustain me to the end and he will because he is Father Almighty. He is the creator of everything, all things, seen and unseen. Friends, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth and of all things seen and unseen. He is the source of everything that is. He is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and he is the one and only God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul and with all your strength. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being the only God. We thank you for being the Father and the fountain of life since before the world began. We thank you for being almighty, strong, powerful, sovereign, able. We thank you for being the creator and overspilling out of who you are into making a world. And we thank you for being all of those things at once. And we pray this week you would draw us more and more into that knowledge and that experience of your oneness, your fatherness, your almightiness. As we go to work and as we raise our kids and as we do the things we do, you would catch us up in the glory of what it is to be children of this God, the only one, the Father Almighty. Amen.